Well, good evening. Thank you again for gathering together on this Lord's Day evening. It is a privilege uh, to open up God's Word to you once more. Uh, it's been a wonderful weekend with you. Thank you for your hospitality to my wife and to me. Uh, we pray that God's Word will continue to bear much fruit as we uh, depart. And I'm thankful for uh, the, the opportunity to get to know this congregation even better. Uh, thank you for all the things that you are doing in this community and all the ways that you are using your gifts for the glory of God and for the good of his kingdom, for the salvation of the lost. Uh, let me pray for us once more as we turn our attention to God's word. Well, Lord our God, would you open our eyes so that we might see marvelous things in your word. Apart from your spirit, Lord, none of us can do the things you've called us to do, can be what you've called us to be. Help us, O oh Lord, not only to be hearers of your word, but to be doers of the word. For your name's sake, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you were to go outside and look at my car, you would see that the driver's side, uh, driver door and the passenger door are both uh, crashed, both wrecked, both uh, bashed in. Uh, it, it happened like this. I have a driveway, a normal driveway with two garage doors. One side of the garage is my shop and, and you know, all the tools, all the things that I, I do and like to enjoy. Other side is for my wife's van, and so we leave that side open. I've hit the point now with five children and three of them aged 20, 18, and 16 where we have five cars in the house when my son is home from college. And so because of that, typically we have three cars lined up on the right side. One of us usually has to park out uh, on the, the street. And so uh, if you're in the middle of that three-car row, uh, you have to sort of maneuver your way uh, around the car that's behind you. Uh, and uh, on the, the, the left side as you're leaving is, uh, as is the case sometimes in driveways, a culvert right, that you have to make sure you do not uh, fall into. That would not be good. Uh, but, of course, on the right side uh, is the last car in the road. And so, bless my 16-year-old daughter's heart, uh, not merely a week after she started driving, uh, she was so intent not to fall into the ditch, not to fall off the culvert, off the side of the, uh, of the driveway, that she ran smack dab into my car. I heard it from our dinner table as she drove off uh, to a babysitting job. I immediately knew what had happened. Uh, of course, uh, she had not even had a chance uh, to get onto the insurance policy yet. Right? They had not, literally had not entered her data into the computer. So when I called and explained the situation, they said, well, you know, she's lost her safe driver discount. I said, yes, I know. She didn't even have it for more than a week. <laughs> right? She hadn't even finished the safe driving discount app yet. Uh, so now, to her credit and to our fault, perhaps, uh, our first car for our first drivers is a stick shift, right? So not only is she learning how to drive, but she's learning how to drive a stick shift. Uh, so I, I share that story uh, so you can commiserate with me, uh, but also uh, because it, it, it beautifully uh, pictures what I've been trying to, to, to get across to you this weekend, uh, that, that the Christian life, uh, we are called as believers, right, to live a two-handed life. Uh, and not only to, to hold on to two different things at a time often, but also at, at points to resist two different things, to, to be wary of, of two different extremes, two different dangers on both sides of us. And so in that driveway, right, you could fall off the ditch or you could hit your dad's car. Right? In the Christian life, as we think about two of the most insidious dangers that we face, uh, we have on the one hand legalism, and we have on the other hand lawlessness or antinomianism. Now perhaps some of you have read 
uh, the book by Edward Fisher with the notes by Thomas Boston, The Marrow of Modern Divinity, one of the first books that I read that really set forth this two-handed theology for me. Uh, Some of you perhaps have read Sinclair Ferguson's uh, The Whole Christ, in which he unpacks the marrow theology uh, in a way that only Sinclair Ferguson could do. Uh, That book uh, and that theme of legalism and lawlessness, both of them lies from the pit of hell, both of them opposed to the gospel. Legalism on the one hand, right, calling on us uh, to say that grace is not enough, right, that we have to contribute something, that we have to, uh, to, to, to earn our salvation, right, the old-fashioned way, the Smith-Barney way, earn it, earn it by your accomplishments, by your doings, by your deeds. But on the other hand, there's lawlessness, there's antinomianism that would say that grace is a get-out-of-jail-free card. That that grace is a license to sin all you want. That holiness does not matter because grace will cover all of your sins. Perhaps you've heard the the little ditty, free from the law, O blessed condition, I can sin all I want and still have remission. This is a wonderful arrangement. But that, of course, is not the gospel. And just like my driveway, there are always dangers. As you hold fast and seek to hold fast to the gospel of Jesus Christ, there are always a danger that you would fall off the pit of legalism, or into the pit of lawlessness. James Henley Thornwell, in his article entitled Antinomianism, I think it's in volume two of his collected writings, he puts it beautifully. He says this, The natural vibration of the mind is from the extreme of legalism to that of licentiousness, lawlessness. And nothing but the grace of God can fix it in the proper medium of divine truth. The gospel, like its blessed master, he writes, is always crucified between two thieves, legalists of all sort on the one hand and antinomians on the other. Now listen to this. He says, the former robs the Savior of the glory of his work for us, legalism, and the other robs him of his glory of his work within us. Legalism robbing the Savior of the glory of his work for us, And antinomianism, robbing the Savior of the glory of his work within us. The Bible is intent to keep us from both of these thieves, to help us to drive straightly down the driveway of truth, the driveway of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we might preserve the glory of Jesus' work both for us and within us. Now this evening I want us to think about these two ditches of legalism and lawlessness by looking at what Paul teaches us here in this passage, particularly verses 1, 1 to 4, about the doctrine of election and the three things that must always accompany and flow from the doctrine of election. Evangelism, holiness, and humility. Now, to be sure, this text is not about election per se. Rather, Paul is setting forth for Titus and for his church the purpose, the nature of his apostolic work, He is asserting the basis of his apostolic authority and laying out essentially a brief philosophy of ministry for Titus to emulate there on the island of Crete. But as he writes these words, again, particularly in verses 1 to 4, he is teaching us by implication the truth of election and how to think about election properly. Specifically, he shows us that evangelism and holiness and humility, far from being opposed to election, far from being unnecessary if you believe in election, rather must be viewed in the closest of connections to God's sovereign election. Arminians deny the truth of 
God's sovereign decree, God's sovereign grace. And so they fall into the ditch of legalism by denying the work of God for us. But many Calvinists, sometimes in their theology, sometimes by our lives, we can deny the necessity or the importance of evangelism, of holiness, of humility, and so fall into the ditch of lawlessness, antinomianism. In the way that we live in the light of our theology, we can deny the glory of God and the work of God in us and through us. And so the biblical Christian, I want to argue this evening, affirms both election and evangelism, both election and holiness, both election and humility. We've confessed it this evening from Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 3, with two hands. The Christian holds on with, with equal tenacity to both the truth that we have been chosen by God in Christ and that we are called to live a life of evangelistic zeal, a life of passionate pursuit of holiness, and a life of humble service to the Lord and to his people and even to those who are not yet his people. But before we look at these three nuts and bolts pair, I do want to just make sure that we're all on the same page as to what we believe about election. Hopefully, nothing I say tonight is new, but but certainly what I'm about to say hopefully will not be new to you. Uh, We see Paul mention there in verse 1, God's elect. Everyone who believes the Bible believes in election, believes something about election. It may not be right, but they believe something about election because it is a biblical term. But what does Paul mean when he refers to God's elect? Well, we have to start, of course, with the fact that the Bible teaches that since the fall of Adam, every man, woman, boy, and girl are dead in their sins and trespasses. By nature, we are the way that Paul describes us there in chapter 3, verse 3. Foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. By nature, we are under God's wrath and curse and deserve nothing but misery in this life and eternal punishment in the life to come. And yet... The Bible teaches that out of this mass of sinful humanity, God has graciously decided and purposed to save an innumerable number. As he writes here in Titus chapter 1, verse 2, God, before time began, made a promise. He made a promise to his son, as we shall see, to give his people, to give to his son a people as a love gift. To give eternal life to that people. He chose them in Christ according to the good purpose of his will before the foundation of the world. To the praise of the glory of his grace. He predestined us that we might be adopted as sons. That we might be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit together work that we might come to know the Lord God in a covenant relationship. As Paul says in chapter 3, verse 5, referring to when God actually saves us, the same is true when he chooses us. It's not by works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. God does not choose us because he looks down the corridors of time and sees that we would be better than the rest or that we would choose him, but rather because it was well-pleasing in sight to save some and to pass by the rest so that his purpose, according to his choice, might stand not because of works, because of him who calls, Paul says in Romans chapter 9. And so in the fullness of the time, 
The Father sends the Son into the world. And you notice what Paul says there in chapter 2, verse 14, that Jesus Christ came and gave himself for us that he might redeem us. Not that he might make us redeemable, but that he might secure and procure the salvation of his sheep, of his people. And in time, he sends his Spirit And his spirit causes us to be born again. You see the way Paul beautifully describes it there in verses 4 through 7 in chapter 3. That we are saved according to his mercy through the washing of regeneration, the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And so those whom God calls to himself effectually, he keeps in his powerful hand because he says in verse 7, we have become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Nothing can snatch us out of the Father's hand. Those who are predestined are called. Those who are called are justified. Those who are justified ultimately will be glorified. Salvation is all of grace. This is what we believe the Bible teaches about our election, and it's by believing these truths that we are kept out of the ditch of legalism, that we are kept off of the roller coaster of of thinking that God's view of us today is based upon what we do or don't do yesterday or tomorrow. And I wonder this evening, perhaps not many of you would fall into that ditch of legalism, of of denying the truth of election, of of not believing it, not agreeing with the things that I've just said, the things you've been taught from this pulpit time and time again. But I, I do wonder, here we are in the PCA, we cling to the truth of this doctrine, we confess it, but do we live in the light of it? Do we see not only a a rejection of of those who would deny the truth of sovereign grace and sovereign election, but also a a, a rejection of those who would say that evangelism isn't that important. Holiness isn't that important. Humility isn't that important. No, we want to cling tightly to both of these truths. And so let's look together at how Paul does this and how he sets this forth for us here in Titus chapter 1. First, election and evangelism. How easy it is to think, to believe, even to live as if evangelism is not necessary if God has chosen his people sovereignly. Why do we worry about preaching the gospel, some might say. For some, that's an excuse not to believe in an election. And for others, it's, it's something that we say, well, we believe in election, but because we believe in it, it doesn't matter. We don't need to share the gospel, or we won't need to try that hard to share the gospel. But what does Paul say in Titus 1, verse 1? He says, he's a bondservant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to, or for the sake of, the faith of God's elect, for their knowledge of the truth. Paul has been set apart, he says. He's been entrusted with the proclamation of the word so that God's elect might come to saving faith, that they might know the truth, that they might know their sinfulness and the all-sufficiency of Jesus Christ alone. Paul saw no tension, no disconnect, between believing in election and believing in the necessity of evangelism. Rather, the doctrine of election was the battery that kept him going as he evangelized. You recall perhaps in Acts chapter 18, uh, when Paul is in Corinth and the Lord appears to him, and he says, do not be afraid, Paul. Go on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you. And no man will attack you in order to harm you. Why? He says, because I have many people in this city. God's elect were there in Corinth. And so he comes to Paul and he says, Paul, keep on preaching. It's through the means of your preaching that the elect will be brought to saving faith. 
God has ordained not only the end, but also the means. And so we see this, don't we, in Romans 8 through 10. On the heels of Paul's clearest exposition of the doctrine of election in Romans 8 and 9, we come in chapter 10 to those familiar words, Paul's most lucid argument for the necessity of evangelism. How will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? Paul believed that God had chosen a people for himself, but that God had also chosen and ordained the means to that end of their salvation would be through believing the preached word of God. Election does not empty evangelism of its power. It energizes evangelism. And of course, Paul learned this where? From our Lord Jesus Christ, who in Matthew chapter 11, verses 25 to 30, held together evangelism and election unlike any other. You go in that passage and you hear Jesus praising the Father for for hiding the gospel from the wise and the intelligent and revealing it to infants. And he says that it was well-pleasing in the Father's sight to do this. And then he says that no one knows the Father but the Son and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Jesus clearly believed in the doctrine of election. But what are the very next words out of his mouth? Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Immediately on the heels of declaring in prayer that God is a sovereign, electing God, Jesus is evangelizing. He is calling sinners to come to himself. You've perhaps heard the story of William Carey, the Baptist missionary to India, who in 1787, during a ministerial fraternal, was speaking about the need to proclaim the gospel to pagan nations. And a man named John Ryland replied, Sit down, young man. You are an enthusiast. When God pleases to convert the heathen, he will do it without consulting you or me. And unfortunately, that sort of lawless approach to evangelism on the part of Calvinists, no less, is even common today. This denial of evangelism is is just as devious, just as dangerous, just as destructive as is the denial of election. Our southern Presbyterian forefathers believed in both election and in evangelism. They believed in missions. Go and read the writings of Thomas Smythe on missions, as I alluded to last night. But let me tell you another story. John Layton Wilson, also from Charleston area, was the leader of the Southern Presbyterian Church's missions effort, uh, both before and after the, the Civil War. He was called to be a missionary while in seminary. And when he went home to tell his father of his plans to go to Africa, he was met with some opposition. And so they, as they discussed, he eventually said, Father, let's go in, into the house and let's sit down and pray about this matter together. They began praying the Lord's Prayer. They were not able to get past three petitions before his father broke down in tears. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Brought face to face with the world embracing affections and purposes of God, his father said, yes, go, go to the mission field. Leighton Wilson was a man committed to seeing the gospel go forth in power. And though it took some time for his father to come around to the idea that he would do that not here in the States, but in Africa. You see that throughout the 19th century, Southern Presbyterians, there was a great love and zeal. See the gospel go forth in power. They believed in election, 
And they believed in evangelism together. But secondly, election and holiness. As we've alluded to already today, the charge is often raised that that believing in election, believing in sovereign grace, will lead a person to conclude that holiness is unimportant or unnecessary. And unfortunately, there are a lot of people who believe in election who will uh, give the truth to that lie, right? Who will live a life such that uh, those who claim right, that, that, that event, election and holiness are incompatible, people will say, well, because look at that person, right? It obviously doesn't connect in their life, in their behavior. But Paul is clear. You see it there in verse 1 of chapter 1. The acknowledgement, the knowledge of the truth accords with godliness. Paul knows of no elect child of God who trusts in Jesus Christ alone for his salvation, who knows the truth, and yet who cares little for a life of Christ-likeness. On the contrary, God has chosen us before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him. He has predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son, Jesus Christ. Election leads inexorably to a vital piety, to a holy living, to an ever-increasing God-centeredness, to a hatred of sin, to a love for the law of God and righteousness. You see it in chapter 2, verse 1. Paul says that there are things that are proper for sound doctrine, that are fitting for sound doctrine. And then he begins to list all those things there in chapter 2. The grace that elects us, the grace that saves us, saves us not only from the guilt of sin, but also from the power of sin and the practice of sin. The grace that justifies us sanctifies us. It enables us to actually obey God's law. Grace does this. You see it there so beautifully in verses 11 and following. The grace of God teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts and to live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age, waiting for, looking for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The same grace that elected us is also that dynamic, that power source, that engine that leads us unto holiness. Paul believed that God had begun a good work in his people and he was going to finish that work. Those whom God has chosen will persevere because we are preserved by God and by his grace. He is the one, as we saw this morning in Philippians 2, who is at work in us to will and to do for his good pleasure. And so we can work out our salvation with fear and trembling. There's a passage in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 19, that holds together these two truths so beautifully. Paul says this, The firm foundation of God stands, having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. That's election. He knows those who are his. And everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. Paul saw no incompatibility between those two truths. He held them together with two hands, election and holiness. Finally, election and humility. As we mentioned this morning, how easy it is to uh, embrace the truth of election and to become proud of the fact that we have figured it out, that we have figured it out that, that election is true, as if we had anything to do with that understanding of the truth of God. How shameful it is that those who would rejoice in the sovereign grace of God would do it 
in a prideful way. What does Paul say in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? And so even the knowledge that salvation is by grace is something that we must not boast in. We cannot boast in it because we were not the ones who figured it out, who came to understand this truth on our own. Paul here clearly teaches that election and humility go together, and he does it in several ways. Look back at chapter 1, verse 2. Paul speaks of the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. Now, ask yourself, to whom does God make this promise? We were not present in eternity past, except in the mind and the decree of God. It couldn't have been the angels. For what reason would God have made a promise to them concerning the hope of eternal life for us, the hope of our salvation? But the Bible does teach that before the foundation of the world, the Father made a promise to his own beloved Son in the councils of eternity. He covenanted together with his Son, promising to give his Son a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And the son agreed to go in the form of a man to do whatever it took to bring that people to himself, to live, to die, to rise again for them. This eternal promise is at the very heart of the doctrine of election and reminds us that election is ultimately not about us at all. It is about the relationship between the father and the son and the spirit. Election is about God, not about us. And that should humble us. That should keep us humble. Election is about the Son receiving glory and honor from the Father and about the Father being glorified in the obedience and the death and the resurrection of the Son. It's about the Spirit fulfilling the purposes of the Father and the Son and bringing us unto salvation. You see, when you, when you come to, to grasp deeper and deeper that that, that, that election is not merely about your salvation, but about the glory of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. This truth humbles you. You realize that pride and arrogance are the last things to go along with this glorious truth. And Paul also teaches us that election and humility go together as he speaks about his own calling. Here in the language of verse 3, he says it was committed to him. It was entrusted to him. The preaching of God was committed to Paul according to the commandment of God, our Savior. Now, Paul here is not seeking to say, look how great I am. It was entrusted and committed to me and not to the rest. No. When we read and compare Scripture with Scripture, particularly 1 Timothy chapter 1, what do we find that, that Paul here, when he speaks of being entrusted with the gospel, is saying, don't you remember who I was? Don't you know what I did? I persecuted the church. But I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, he writes, who has strengthened me. He considered me faithful, putting me into service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. It says Paul thinks about his ministerial calling that he says, I'm the chief of sinners. I've been entrusted with this gospel. As Paul thinks about his call to bring the gospel to the lost and to the found, he cannot help but be humbled by the fact that God has chosen him for salvation and chosen him for his apostolic work. 
And this humility ought to mark us as well. Don't we see that here in chapter 3? In verse 1, Paul says, Remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. Remembering who we were. Remembering what we were before God saved us and called us, as he says there in verse 3. For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, so forth. But then God's grace appeared. God's kindness appeared, not because of what we've done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. As Paul writes elsewhere in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, consider your calling, brethren. There weren't many wise or noble or mighty according to the flesh. But what? God has chosen the foolish things of this world to shame the wise, the, the base things, the things that are not, the weak things, to shame the strong. Why does he do this? This way? So that no one might boast in themselves, but that he who boasts, let him boast in the Lord, in the Lord alone. One pastor has put it like this so beautifully, the fact that we are elect does not mean that we are select. The fact that we are chosen does not mean that we are choice. The truth of election ought to create within our hearts a humility, a patience, a gentleness, not a haughtiness, not a quick temper, not a a pride, we said it this morning, knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. We're always tempted to turn election by grace into election because I'm smarter than you are, right? because I figured out more than you figured out. But to understand election is to understand that you deserve nothing, that what you get, what you've received, is not what you deserve. And so when we believe in this glorious reality of election, As we see in Paul's writings in life, we must be humble. This truth must humble us. Even as we hear this sermon, I hope you've been humbled. I don't evangelize with as much zeal as I ought. I don't pursue holiness with as much tenacity as I ought. I don't walk in humility with others, humility before the Lord as I ought. Even here, we are humbled as we think about our lives. It is only by the mercy of God that we are not consumed. It's only by the mercy of God that we are kept out of the ditch of legalism or the ditch of lawlessness. And so my prayer as I close up my time with you this weekend is that the Lord would enable you to cling tightly with both hands, with two hands, to his truth. And that you would use both of those hands to resist, to, to hold off, both of the ditches, both of the the dangers on either side of God's truth, and that you would believe in election with all your heart, and that it would lead you to a life of evangelism, bold evangelism, that it would lead you to a life of holiness, that it would lead you to a life of humility. John Lafayette Gerardo, the great 19th century Presbyterian from Charleston, wrote a poem that beautifully affirms the gospel over against both legalism and lawlessness. Listen to what he writes as we close. Nothing to pay? No, nothing to win salvation by merit from law and from sin. But all things to buy without money and price, the wine and the milk of a free paradise. Nothing to do? No, not to procure a heaven by infinite blood made secure. But all things, with labor and sweat of the face, to honor my Savior 
and magnify grace. What of the law? Its thunders were stilled against my poor soul by the blood that was spilled. But the hands which were nailed to the wood of the tree now wield its commands to be honored by me. Nothing of guilt? No, not to my God, as judge and condemner uplifting his rod. But ah, I am guilty of breaking his word in the house of my father, the church of my Lord. What am I waiting for? Ah, spare me a while to tell of thy love to a sinner so vile. Then take me to heaven, which is not my due, and give me the crown of fidelity too. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you that you have worked together to bring about our salvation from before the foundation of the world. Lord, would you be gracious to each one of us? Would you help us to have our guard up of the dangers on both sides? Oh, Lord, in our own lives, in the lives of our churches, would you not allow us to crucify the gospel between these two thieves of legalism and lawlessness? Oh, Lord, would you give us grace to preserve the glory of your work both for us and in us? We pray, O oh God, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that we would be alert and attuned to all the ways, Father, that you call us to hold on to two things at the same time, to resist two things at the same time. Lord, would you help us to walk down that driveway of truth, threading that needle, perhaps, if it even calls for something so specific. Father, help us, we pray, in our lives to walk clinging to this truth of election. Lord, may it not merely be something we believed at one point in the past. May it be something that we rest our hearts in day by day. Lord, may we know that we are Christians, not because of anything that we have done, just like the Israelites of old, Lord. It's not because of our righteousness, but it's because of the righteousness of Christ. It's because of your sovereign choice of us, according to your purpose. The Lord, as we cling to this truth, would you make us those who give you all the glory, who humble our hearts before you and before others, Lord, who walk in love and holiness, who desire, Lord, that all the chosen race would come to see and to embrace the beauty of the Lord Jesus. Lord, we stand amazed that our eyes have been opened. Lord, would you give us a zeal, a desire, Lord, that those who do not yet know you would come to know you. Would you give us a zeal to share Christ with them? Lord, come, we pray. Work the truth that we have heard this Lord's day into our hearts. Father, glorify your name. 